Happy New Year, caller. What's your New Year's resolution? <laughs> Does it matter? Resolutions are broken just as easily as they're made. I prefer to focus on life's rare consistencies. Such as? Well, take, take death, for instance. Now's not the time for such thoughts. It's the time for celebration. Oh, well, I'm sure Ben Smart and Olivia Hope shared your mentality until they vanished on New Year's Eve of 1997. It's important to always have your guard up to an extent. Better safe than sorry. The family of Scott Kologi could have used that advice on New Year's Eve 2017 when they were gunned down in 14 shots from a high-powered rifle. Here's two gruesomely brutal, horrifying New Year's murders from hell. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The murders of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope. In December 1997, friends Ben Smart, age 21, and Olivia Hope, age 17, celebrated New Year's Eve at Forno Lodge, located in the Endeavor Inlet of the Marlboro Sounds, with 1,500 to 2,000 other partygoers. Hope had traveled to the lodge with a group on a chartered yacht, the Tamarack, while Smart had arrived separately. At about 4 a.m., the lodge bartender Guy Wallace drove Hope and Smart in his water taxi to Tamarack, where the pair intended to sleep. When Hope and Smart found there were no vacant cabins remaining aboard Tamarack, they reboarded Wallace's water taxi. At the time, Wallace had three other passengers on board, Hayden Morrissey, Sarah Dyer, and a single man who would become crucial to the police investigation that was to come. The single man offered the pair a place to sleep on what he said was his yacht. Wallace let Smart and Hope off with the single man at the yacht and then dropped off the two other passengers at their bock, a New Zealand term for a modest holiday home or beach house. This was the last time Smart and Hope were seen alive Ben Smart and Olivia Hope were reported missing on the 2nd of January, 1998. Initially, the Blenheim police treated the investigation as a missing persons case, but it soon became apparent that the disappearance was suspicious and out of character. Detective Inspector Rob Pope was appointed to take charge of the investigation on the 5th of January, and a mix of police staff from across the country joined the investigation, which was restructured as a homicide case. The investigation was named Operation Tam, short for Tamarack, and generated widespread interest from the public and media. The investigation was large in scope, featuring requests for information from the public, significant amounts of interviews across the country, and months of extensive searches of the waters surrounding the Endeavor Inlet. Despite this, no bodies were ever found. With little to nothing to go on, police began trying to determine the identity of the unknown or the mystery man that offered Ben and Olivia a place to sleep on that yacht. Police claimed that there were a number of descriptions of Scott Wilson earlier in the night that were similar to descriptions of the unknown man. These descriptions depicted Watson as having a scruffy look that night, saying he had wavy hair and needed a shave or a haircut or both. However, a photograph of Watson taken on the Mina Cornelia yacht where he had partied before heading to Forno Lodge shows him clean-shaven with short hair. Police quickly focused their investigation on Watson. Later in the investigation, Pope would say that Watson stood out like a dog's balls and, quote, had the right sort of agenda and pedigree, apparently referring to his criminal record. Watson had 48 criminal convictions at the time, mainly from when he was a teenager, for burglary, theft, cannabis offenses, two counts of possessing an offensive weapon, and one for assault 
when he was 16. He had been imprisoned for two short periods in 1989 and 1990. Watson had seemingly reformed in his 20s, having just one conviction in the eight years leading up to 1998. Water taxi driver Guy Wallace told police and the media that he had dropped Smart and Hope off with a wooden catch with two masts. He had been in prison for two short periods in 1989 and 1990. Watson had seemingly reformed in his 20s, having just one conviction in the eight years leading up to 1998. Water taxi driver Guy Wallace told police and the media that he had dropped Smart and Hope off on a wooden catch yacht with two masts. He described the catch as well-maintained, built of timber, with a thick blue stripe on the hull, and several round portholes with brass surrounds. Watson's boat, the Blade, was very different to the one Wallace described. It was a 26-foot-long steel sloop with one mast, no portholes, and did not have a blue stripe. A witness to these events... Hayden Morrissey told the court that the boat he saw Olivia and Ben get on with the unidentified man was not Watson's sloop blade. Police analyzed thousands of photos taken on New Year's Eve and interviewed all of the boat skippers there, but were unable to confirm Wallace's reports of a catch in the Endeavor Inlet that night. At the trial, the Crown also claimed that police eliminated every one of the other 176 yachts identified in the vicinity at the time, as the vessel which the two victims boarded after being dropped off by Gus Wallace's water tax. Detective Pope stated that the police were fairly certain the catch did not exist. However, a number of witnesses who came forward with sightings of a two-masted catch said their statements were not followed up or were told their information was not wanted. Former Detective Mike Chappell, who worked on the case, later claimed officers were told not to follow up sightings of two-masted catches. Despite the initial publicity and search for a two-masted catch, the police seized Watson's comparatively small sloop, Blade, and from then on focused their investigation on him. Writing in the journal North and South, investigative reporter Mike White said, A public demonstration of Watson began, with police often doing little to stop rumors about him that began swirling. End quote. Rumors about the Watson family began to swirl in the small town of Picton, as well as in national media. Police obtained warrants to tap the phone lines of Watson and his associates from February until his arrest an investigation known as Operation Kelt. Police recorded 70 plus hours of Watson's phone conversations and persuaded his former girlfriend to ask him potentially incriminating questions. At his trial, the jury heard 40 minutes of edited conversation. Watson was described by a police representative as smug during these conversations, but never said anything to indicate he was involved. Later, Watson would accuse police of influencing media coverage of the case, suggesting he was guilty. He said the police followed and intimidated members of his family, and alleged he had an incestuous relationship with his sister. Gerald Hope, Olivia's father, has also asserted that the police deliberately leaked details of Watson's criminal history and were responsible for the unsubstantiated suggestions of incest. Guy Wallace also said he felt tremendous pressure from police and the media. He was interrogated by the detectives from Christchurch CIB who suggested he was somehow responsible for the disappearance of Hope and Smart. As a result of accusations against him by the police, some locals began treating him with suspicion. People he knew began to think he was guilty and shunned him. He said that in the initial stages of the investigation, the police were desperate to arrest someone and it could have easily been him. Guy Wallace said, I know in my heart of hearts, if he wasn't there, I'd be doing time. It's just that simple, end quote. When the police turned their focus on Watson, they showed Wallace Scott Watson's photos at least three times. Each time he said Watson was not the mystery man he had served drinks to at the Furno Lounge. 
In 2007, Wallace told investigative journalist Mike White, I feel I've been shafted by the cops. As far as I'm concerned, Scott's innocent, always has been, end quote. In 2015, Wallace told the New Zealand news media website that for years afterwards he was haunted by his involvement with the case and that he felt responsible for sending Watson to prison. He said the case had had a huge impact on his life. In March 2021, Scott Watson died in a suspected suicide. Watson told a parole hearing in December last year he was unable to get psychologist treatment behind bars because he wouldn't confess to the murder. He made his latest attempt for parole in front of the parole board at Rolston Prison, south of Christchurch. At the conclusion of the hearing, panel convener Sir Ron Young told him, It's a no to parole, which perhaps won't surprise you, end quote. On April 20th, 1998, Wallace was shown a photo montage containing eight different shots. In one of these shots, Scott had his eyes half-closed in the middle of blinking. The unidentified man on the water taxi had been described as having hooded eyes. Based on his blink photograph, Wallace picked Watson as the single man on the water taxi. So did Roz McKinley, the bar manager who served drinks to the unknown man at Ferno Lounge. So did Roz McNelly, the bar manager who served drinks to the unknown man at Ferno Lodge. Neither Wallace or McNelly were shown the photograph of Scott Watson, taken on the Mina Cornelia yacht which shows him clean shaven with short hair. Based on these identifications, Watson was arrested for the murders in the early hours of June 15, 1998, after, about five months after the pair were reported missing. Subsequently, both Wallace and McNelly recanted and stated the police deceived them with the blink photo. The trial, which attracted considerable media attention, commenced on June 10, 1999, and concluded when the verdicts were delivered on September 11, 1999. The Crown called approximately 488 witnesses. Olivia Hope's father, Gerald, said he felt that much of the prosecution case was pure theater, focused on emotional manipulation of the jury. After the trial was over, Gerald Hope also went to inspect the blade when it was in storage. He felt it unlikely that Ben and Olivia could have been locked in a cabin of such small size, nor that Olivia would have entered the cabin if she needed somewhere to sleep. Ben Smart's mother, Mary, disagreed with Gerald Hope. Quote, we think differently. As far as we are concerned, it was a fair and just trial. End quote. The main goal of the Crown's case was that Watson invited Smart and Hope to sleep on his yacht in the early hours of the 1st of January, 1998, and that this was the last time they were seen. Much of the Crown's case was circumstantial and largely relied on the identification of Watson by Guy Wallace and Roz McNeely both of whom subsequently presented affidavits claiming that the police had misled them. Another water taxi driver, Don Anderson, testified that he dropped Watson at the Blade sometime between 2 and 4 a.m. Some of the occupants of the neighboring boats, the Minia Cornelia and Bianco, testified they were woken up by Watson in the early hours of the morning as he wanted to party. Both the Crown and the defense agreed that this trip had taken place. The Crown argued late in the trial that Watson returned to shore after Anderson dropped him off at the Blade, but couldn't say how. This became known as the two-trip theory. The Crown argued that it didn't matter that the prosecution couldn't prove how Watson got back to shore, but said he must have done so because witnesses said he was involved in an altercation on shore probably between 3 and 3.30 a.m. The prosecution claimed that the blade left its mooring at Endeavor Inlet probably before 6 a.m. on New Year's Day with Ben and Olivia's bodies. 
and that Watson dumped them into Cook Strait, returned to Erie Bay, and lied about the time he had arrived. A number of witnesses testified that they saw the boat at different times during the day. Another witness said that the blade arrived in Erie Bay shortly after 5 p.m. and that when it arrived, Mr. Watson was the only occupant. Watson's boat, the Blade, was seized by police on the 12th of January, 1998, and subjected to a heavy forensic examination. Police found a blanket on the vessel, from which a number of human hairs were later recovered. It was claimed at the trial that two of 400 hairs found on that blanket matched Olivia Hope's reddish-gold hair type. Susan Vintner, a forensic biologist, testified in court that one hair was matched to Olivia Hope through DNA testing. The hair evidence was considered strong enough at the trial to overcome the uncertainty around the identification of Scott Watson as the mystery man by Guy Wallace and Roz McNeely, who now felt they had been misled by the police. At subsequent appeals by Watson, his counsel questioned the chain of custody regarding the hair, suggesting Vintner may have mixed up the hair samples by examining known hair from Olivia on the same table and day as she examined the samples taken from the blade. The defense also pointed out that there was a one centimeter hole in the evidence bag containing Olivia's hair, which added to the risk of contamination. Vintner testified at the trial that cross-contamination is an explanation that, quote, needs to be considered. The accuracy of the hair testing has been questioned by other experts during the appeals in the years following Watson's trial and remains controversial to this day. Part of the Crown case was that Watson had cleaned the blade to remove all evidence that Ben and Olivia had been on board. The only fingerprints found belonged to Scott and his sister Sandra Jo, who went sailing with her brother for a few days in the new year before the boat had been seized by police. Watson said that he had cleaned the blade due to sea spray from the rough trip from the North Island shortly before New Year's Eve. The jury was shown scratches on the interior foam lining of the hatch cover on Watson's boat, which the prosecution claimed were made with human fingernails by someone trying to get out. However, the hatch was not lockable from the outside, and their positioning meant that they could only have been made when the hatch was open. Watson and his sister maintained the scratches had been made by Watson's nieces. The jury heard from two prisoners whose names were suppressed. They claimed that they met Watson in prison when he was under arrest and that he said he was responsible for Ben and Olivia's disappearance. Author John Golter described the evidence of witness A and B as a bombshell and said it had dramatic impact. However, witness A subsequently admitted to a number of lawyers and to the New Zealand Herald that he had lied in court. At the time, he was receiving death threats from a gang member and coming up for parole. Police visited him at least 10 times over a 12-month period leading up to the trial and pressured him into making false accusations in his testimony. Witness A said he chose to help the police in the hope that they would be able to save him. Witness B said that he and Watson interacted on numerous occasions and became good friends in Addington Prison. But in fact, Witness B was never in the same cell as Watson and had little opportunity to develop any close relationship with Watson such that a confession might be made. It was later revealed that on his release from prison, this witness was granted the use of a car and a cell phone for his testimony by police. Watson was convicted of the murders in September 1999 after an 11-week trial and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum non-parole period of 17 years. 
Watson told the jury, you're wrong when the verdict was read out in court. In 2015, he said he never met Ben or Olivia and has continued to insist he is innocent since conviction. The defense appealed Watson's conviction and the case went to the Court of Appeal in April and May 2000. Three appeal court judges heard submissions from both the defense and the prosecution but decided there was no new evidence to recommend a second trial. They disregarded the defense's submission that the prosecution's so-called two-trip theory had appeared out of the blue late in the trial. In November 2000, after the Court of Appeal hearing, a witness who testified at Watson's trial contacted the Weekend Herald to say his evidence given under oath was nothing more than an act. He said he was being threatened by gang members in prison, he was coming up for parole, and was put under pressure by police to testify, and I agreed on the basis that my life was getting threatened, end quote. The witness spoke to reporters at the New Zealand Herald for five hours, but refused to sign any documents that might have assisted Watson's lawyers. In 2003, Watson's lawyers Mike Antonovic and Greg King applied to the Privy Council, which found no grounds for further appeal. In 2009, Watson applied to the Governor General for a royal prerogative of mercy. He sent a 22-page letter and enclosed a copy of Keith Hunter's book, Trial by Trickery, and award-winning documentary, Murder on the Blade? Question mark. The Ministry of Justice appointed Christy McDonald to provide advice on the application. She produced two reports on the case in 2011 and 2013. McDonald interviewed two key witnesses, Guy Wallace and Ross McNelly, and concluded that recanting their original testimony was not fresh and did not raise reasonable doubt about the conviction. In 2010, journalist Keith Hunter and Scott's father, Chris Watson, made a complaint to Independent Police Conduct Authority about police conduct in the case. The complaint alleged that the head of the inquiry, Inspector Rob Pope, ignored relevant evidence, spread rumors about Scott Watson and his family, wore false affidavits to obtain search warrants, and that the police bought or pressured two prisoners into telling lies in court, and that they deliberately or accidentally contaminated the hair samples found in Watson's boat. The report was highly critical of aspects of the investigation. Led by present Deputy Commissioner Rob Pope, it states that the photograph montages used by police breached so many rules it exposed the integrity of the investigation to justifiable criticism and to the drawing of inferences about intention and motivation. It also states that the police failed to pursue leads to find the mystery catch seen by many witnesses, including some witnesses who believed they saw a woman who could be Olivia Hope aboard. The head of the IPCA, Justice Lowell Goddard, said it was a difficult inquiry and some actions of police fell short of best practice and had the potential to influence witnesses. In June 2015, Watson successfully challenged at court the Corrections Department's refusal to allow him to be interviewed about his case by North and South journalist Mike White. On the 8th and 9th of November 2016, the interview went ahead as planned. In November 2017, a second application for a royal pardon was filed on Watson's behalf by an Auckland man and an ex-convict who had taken an interest in the Watson case. The application concerned the reliability of the evidence relating to the two blonde hairs found on a blanket in Watson's boat. It included a report by a forensic scientist Sean Doyle, which questioned whether the hairs were really hoped, 
and criticized the way the hair samples were handled at the time of the original trial. The blonde hairs, believed to be hoped, were the only physical evidence linking the couple to Watson. In June 2020, it was reported that Watson's case would be referred back to the Court of Appeal because of continuing concern about the reliability of the forensic testing conducted on the two hairs found on a blanket, which allegedly belonged to Olivia. Watson asked to be released from prison on bail while preparing for the appeal, but this was denied by the court in October 2021. In May 2022, the court agreed that when the hearing goes ahead, Watson would be allowed to challenge whether the controversial eyewitness evidence was properly obtained and should have been heard by the jury at his trial. Because the court agreed to allow the photo identification to be challenged, the hearing has been delayed until May 2023 to allow the defense time to prepare. On the night of December 31st, 2017, just before the ball dropped on New Year's Eve, 16-year-old Scott Kologi used a high-powered rifle to kill his 42-year-old father, Stephen, his 44-year-old mother, Linda, his 18-year-old sister, Brittany, and his grandfather's 70-year-old partner, Mary Schultz. Kologi's brother, grandfather, and a family friend were in the house at the time of the shooting, but escaped unharmed. Officers with the Long Branch Police Department and deputies with Monmouth County Sheriff's Office at approximately 11.43 p.m. on December 31, 2017, responded to a 911 call reporting shots fired at 635 Wall Street. Upon arriving at the scene, first responders discovered all four victims at different locations within the residence, with each appearing to have sustained multiple gunshot wounds. All four were pronounced dead at the scene. Kologi was arrested at the scene. A semi-automatic rifle was also recovered. Kologi was initially charged as a juvenile, but the case was later moved to adult court. Kologi told detectives that he went upstairs and put on a leather jacket, sunglasses, and earplugs just before his killing spree. He then loaded a rifle belonging to his biological brother and stood in his room with all the lights turned off, noting that he knew his mother would come looking for him and he didn't want her to see him with the weapon. Scott Kologi claimed, quote, When everything was happening, I felt like I was watching it, like I was further back in my mind. I just kept firing until, like, they stopped moving. Assistant Prosecutor Brennan described the shooting during the proceeding to illustrate the premeditated nature of the crime. Per Brennan, Kologi lured his mother upstairs shooting her in the head four times, under the cover of darkness. He then shot his father in the back and torso as he rushed upstairs to see what was going on. Kologi then made his way downstairs and casually murdered his surrogate grandmother with several shots to the torso. He then shot his sister, who was home from school on winter break, in the head three times while she sat at the kitchen table. Kologi told detectives that he planned to shoot more people until he saw his grandfather who, along with Kologi's brother, was home during the attack, fall to his knees and break down in tears after he shot Mary Schultz, which made him, quote, confused. Defense attorneys had tried to get Kologi transferred to a psychiatric facility, but a judge ordered him to remain behind bars as he stood trial. They argued that Kologi's mental health issues included a history of hallucinations, autism, and, quote, distorted thinking. Kologi pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His attorneys, Richard Lamoro and Amika Nukwo, argued that their client had untreated schizophrenia and hallucinations and experienced a psychotic break the day of the murders. Kologi also suffered from severe developmental disabilities. Kologi's defense attorneys called on one of his surviving brothers, Jonathan Ruiz, to the stand to support his claims during the second week of the three-week trial. Ruiz testified that at the time of the shootings, his brother still believed in Santa Claus, slept in his parents' bed, and could not get dressed by himself. 
When asked how he knew his brother still believed in Santa, Ruiz replied, quote, because I would help hide presents in the attic so he would believe that Santa brought him the presents, and the presents were tagged Santa. A prosecution expert countered that Kologi was autistic, not schizophrenic, and knew what he was doing when he killed his family members. Prosecutors said that when the verdict was handed down, that the jury ruling confirmed Kologi was responsible for the decisions and actions on the night his family died. Acting Monmouth County Prosecutor Laura Linsky said, quote, This trial hinged on issues of mental health and the responsibility of this defendant. In recognizing the criminality of the defendant's actions, we also recognize that this is a tragedy for all of the family members who are left to mourn this tremendous loss, end quote. Judge Mark Lemieux first denied a series of motions by the defense seeking a new trial and a reversal of the verdict. During the sentencing hearing, Lemieux called the evidence in the case overwhelming, adding that the crime caused immeasurable harm. Several of Scholz's relatives had read impact statements into the record. Monmouth County Superior Court Criminal Division presiding judge Mark C. Lemieux sentenced Scott Kologi to 150 years in state prison. Testimony during the trial revealed that Kologi's mother didn't want her son to tell his therapist that he thought about killing people because she was afraid he would be hospitalized. Defense attorney Amika Nikuo said, quote, He's a mentally ill child who begged his mother for help and never got it, end quote. Although the prosecution had another version of the story, Monmouth County Assistant Prosecutor Caitlin J. Sidley said, The teen pulled the trigger 14 times, 12 of those shots hit the victims. During the hearing, Sean Brennan stressed that Kologi planned out the murders. He researched whether the weapon he used would be effective against responding police donning bulletproof vests. Brennan also pointed out how Kologi lured his mother upstairs, shooting her to death from the cover of darkness in his room, and then fatally shooting his father when he rushed to see what was going on. Wearing earplugs to protect himself from the sound of the weapon, Kologi then slowly maneuvered around their bodies and walked downstairs before casually murdering Scholes and his sister, who was home on winter break following her first semester at college. Carol Kologi, Stephen Kologi Sr.'s mother and Scott's grandmother, asked the judge if he could send him to a place where he could get help for his mental illness. Carol said, Scott was a 16-year-old child who recognized that he needed help because of damaging thoughts. Scott told his mother that he was having bad thoughts about killing people, including our family members. Although he was found guilty, I do believe Scott's mental condition is the impetus behind that night in 2017. I'm asking the court for some compassion and understanding in this matter, end quote. Defense attorney Richard Lamoro said he would appeal Kologi's conviction and sentence. Acting Monmouth County Prosecutor Lori Linsky said, Our deepest condolences remain with the victim's family and friends, who continue to feel the impact of the loss of their loved ones, and who will live with their grief in perpetuity. End quote. During the hearing, Judge Mark Lemieux said, The intention of this court is that this defendant never see the light of the outside of a jail cell ever again. I hope one day you realize the magnitude of what you've done here. Kologi must serve at least 85% of the sentence or 127 and a half years before becoming eligible for parole under the terms of New Jersey's No Early Release Act, according to a statement released by the prosecutor's office. If you or someone you know needs mental help, text STRENGTH to the crisis text line at 741-741 to be connected to a certified crisis counselor. Thank you for joining us on this special holiday episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Come back next week when we'll dive deep into more shocking true crimes.
With every crime, someone somewhere has information that someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263.